Amen. Be seated. Well, this morning we're back in the book of Romans to talk about one of my favorite topics in all of Scripture, worship. Worship leader always loves that. But before we jump into it, I want to get our hearts pumping on that subject. Because sometimes we get here on a Sunday morning, we didn't get enough sleep, we're tired. But worship should be something that really pumps our hearts up. It should get us excited to come and to praise the one who has saved us. So I want to get us going this morning by recalling a story about worship from Luke chapter 7. You don't have to turn there, just listen to, uh, I'll sort of recount the story. You probably recall this set, the, the setting of this story. It centers around a Pharisee by the name of Simon, who at the time was intrigued by Jesus and by his teaching. At the time, you have to recall that Jesus' teaching was something of a curiosity. He hadn't really become a threat to the uh, power structure of the religious elite in Israel just yet. So Simon was intrigued by this guy, and so he invited Jesus to a dinner party with a few important friends to get a closer look at this guy who was capturing the attention of all these people up in Galilee. And Jesus, maybe to our surprise, he accepts the offer, and he shows up at Simon's house, and he comes in, and the text says he reclines at the table along with the other guests. And then suddenly, an unexpected guest shows up in the doorway. A woman, a woman who Luke leaves unnamed. She has a certain reputation around town as being a notorious sinner, probably a prostitute. And Luke says this is what she did. She brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. This is, a, this is a shocking scene for these Pharisees and these elitists who were at the dinner. No doubt they were appalled by all of it. In fact, Simon himself condemns Jesus and calls him a fraud, basically, for allowing this, this woman, this sinner, to come and to touch him. That's something a Pharisee would never allow. Now, there's all kinds of interesting questions we could ask about the background of this story, things we don't know. How did this woman know about Jesus? Did she, did she personally hear him teach How does she know that he would be at Simon's house on that day? And we don't have all the answers that I wish we had, but I think we can tell a few important things about the condition of her heart. To start with, you have to understand how much courage it took for her to show up and seek out Jesus like this. Remember, first century culture, women didn't have the place that they have today. So for any woman, let alone a prostitute or somebody of this social uh, status, to seek out a holy man like Jesus would have been highly inappropriate. So it took a lot of courage for her to do this and to come to a gathering where Pharisees would be present. She was basically signing up to endure all kinds of stares and whispers and outright mocking. She was basically opening herself up to public humiliation just to be in the presence of Jesus. Now, culturally, there's good reason to believe that she came prepared really just to do one thing, and that was to anoint his feet with this perfume, not to wash his feet. And we know that because she didn't come with the necessary tools for washing feet. She didn't have a a basin. She didn't have water. She didn't have a towel. And when she approached Jesus, she realized something wasn't right. Now, it was customary in that day for a host like Simon to do a couple of things when a, a guest like Jesus, who he thought at the time at least to be a prophet, when he came, there's a couple of things he should have done. First of all, he should have greeted him with a kiss on the cheek. Second, he should have had one of his servants come in and wash his feet and anoint his head with oil, but none of that had happened. So 
we, we get a sense that maybe Simon wasn't quite on board with Jesus yet. He was, he was leaving some distance between himself and Jesus so he couldn't be accused of jumping on board the Jesus bandwagon, so to speak. We know that didn't happen. So this woman bends down at Jesus' feet and she finds that they're still filthy dirty. Now, she dared not kiss Jesus on the face as Simon should have done, but she could kiss his feet, dirt and all. Imagine. And as she began to kiss his feet, she was overcome with emotion at just being in his presence. And suddenly the tears begin to flow and the tears fall on his feet. And you get a sense that this woman understood the great debt that she owed to God. She understood that she was desperate for forgiveness. And as her tears poured out on Jesus' really dirty feet, probably made quite a mess of things. And since she didn't really have a towel to try to clean it up, she improvised. She let her hair down which was something a woman didn't do in public in that time. She let her hair down and she dried his dirty feet with her hair. Can you picture the scene? She wasn't about to stop either. The text says that she continued to kiss his feet and then she took out this bottle of costly perfume and she poured it, all of it, onto Jesus' feet. See, here's the thing. In that moment, she didn't care what anybody thought of her. She didn't care what any of these Pharisees thought about what she was doing. She was in the presence of Jesus, and that's all that mattered. And then Luke writes that Jesus then turned to Simon and told him a parable about forgiveness. Here's what the parable says. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other just 50. And then when they were both unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon, the Pharisee, answered Jesus and said, Well, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, You've judged correctly. And turning to the woman, man, this would have been inappropriate in this culture. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see her? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. What a picture of worship. What a picture of how we ought to be worshiping. So with that in mind, think for a moment about your concept of worship today as we sit here this morning. How much are we willing to sacrifice in order to render to Jesus the worship that he deserves? Would you risk public humiliation to worship Jesus? Would you fearlessly cross every cultural and social barrier to be in his presence? Would you give up your most valuable possession in exchange for just being with him? Would you be willing to use your very body, your hands, your tears, even your hair, to serve and to worship him? I'll go a step further. How about your entire life? Your entire life. Would you be willing to give up everything to be a living, breathing sacrifice to God? We're going to find out what that means today. Grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to read one of the most taught-on passages in the entire New Testament. One of everybody's favorite passages. In fact, this is a passage that oftentimes you'll find in a topical study, one of the first places that pastors love to go to because it's such a rich passage. We're only going to cover one verse today. 
I know the promise was that we're going to accelerate through Romans. It's been a while, and then we're going to bite off big chunks. We cannot do that today. This is too important. We're going to look at verse 1 today. By the way, let's go back to our outline. I know I've showed you this a number of times, so you can see where we are in our study. Remember, five books within the book of Romans. We started with the book of sin, and then came the book of salvation, which is the remedy for sin, then sanctification, and then we just finished this unit of thought we call sovereignty, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so here today we get into what we call the book of service beginning in chapter 12. In fact, let's back up, let's back up to chapter 11 and just go over those last few verses so we can catch the flow of, of what Paul's saying. Remember, I, I know I've said this before, the chapter divisions in your Bible are not inspired by God. <laughs> They're done by men. So remember, as Paul's writing, it's not, oh, I've ended that chapter, I'm starting a whole new thought. No, it's a flow that continues on. So we want to make sure we catch this. Now, Let's start up there in verse 32 of chapter 11. Remember, Paul has just laid out this amazing picture this, of his sovereign rule over all the nations and all the people, both Jew and Gentile, right? And he's talking about this weird situation, how, how in, weird in our eyes, how God had, had the Jews front and center, and then because of their unbelief, it opened the door for the, South, for the Gentiles to come in and be saved. And then he promises there's coming a day, and we're seeing it in our day, where the Gentiles will begin to disbelieve. And then when Jesus returns, the Jews are going to come back front and center. So, so basically he said, here's what's going on, that God has shut up everybody in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all kinds of people, both Jew and Gentile. And that's what it says in verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Now notice that word mercy, because that's going to carry over into chapter 12. This is God's desire for the nations, to show mercy to those whom he will show mercy to. And then Paul goes in verse 33 into this amazing sort of benedictive uh, shout of praise. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. In other words, we as human beings never would have drawn it up like this. We just don't have that type of vision, that type of wisdom. Verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are how many things? All things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul cannot help himself but to break into praise and worship at the end of chapter 11. Now, let's look at verse 1 in chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, here's why we can only cover verse 1 today. Because every, almost every phrase in verse 1 requires us to slow down and, and sort of reflect on it. The word therefore the phrase mercies of God, the phrase present your bodies, the phrase a living and holy sacrifice, and the phrase spiritual service of worship, all of those things are absolutely packed with meaning. So we'll start with the first word, at least in the New American Standard, therefore. And I know what you're saying. You're like, well, how important can a therefore be? Well, in this particular place, in, in Romans chapter 12, this is a big deal, primarily because of where it's placed within the book. This therefore ser serves as the hinge that, that Paul uses to move from this direction to a different direction. It's a hinge point for us or a linchpin. 
Here's the thing. When the biblical writers use a therefore, like this one, what it means is that they finished building a foundation, and now they're about to construct a building on top of that foundation. So it's a very important moment in the writing. In fact, here's, a, here's an image for you construction guys so that you can visualize what I'm talking about. That is a foundation. That's what Paul's been doing for 11 chapters, is building that for one purpose, so he can put a beautiful house on top of it. Does that make sense? For the next five chapters, Paul's going to call us to live a certain way as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that word, therefore, he says, I'm done laying the foundation. It's in place. It's perfect. I've given you 11 chapters of deep, deep theology, and now it's time to build the house. So here you go. Here's chapters 12 through 16. Make sense? And what is the structure he's about to build? Practical Christian living that is sacrificial and pleasing to God. That's what we're going to get to see now for five chapters. Practical Christian living that is sacrificial and pleasing to God. So we're turning. There's a whole bunch of different words we can use. Turning from doctrine to practice, from theology to ethics, from what we believe to what we should do. Okay, all those types of things. In other words, because of all the truth about things like God and sin and Christ and faith and salvation and sanctification and the spirit and sovereignty, because of all that that we've seen in those first 11 chapters, therefore, we're to build our lives on this foundation. Amen? So this is really important to understand. And I know we could just gloss right over it, but folks, this is not just an academic exercise to brush over. Well-meaning people in churches all over this world do not understand this principle. It's very important. If we were just to jump into Paul's teaching on practical Christian living without that supporting doctrine, it'd be like building a house without the foundation below it. Now, sometimes churches do that. They're like, you know what? Let's not mess with that really hard stuff in the first 11 chapters. Let's just dive into practical stuff. Because really what people are looking for is just you know, five steps to do this better or six steps to make that, you know, this part of their life better. But that's like building a house without a foundation below it. Now, as you can see, foundations aren't necessarily attractive. But if you don't have it, your house is going to collapse. Isn't that true? On the flip side, if we're just to study doctrine without paying any attention to practical application, then what we'd end up doing is spending all kinds of time designing this intricate and beautiful foundation and then walk away and never build a house. And that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? That'd be foolish if we built a foundation and then failed to build the house. So I'll give you some practical examples of what I mean here. Guys, there are entire denominations and churches out there who have organized themselves purely around things like spiritual experience and a social gospel. They're out there. They specialize in caring for others. They're constantly busy with activities and all kinds of practical ministry. They, they're the ones out there feeding the hungry and sheltering the homeless, and they're, they're sponsoring all kinds of programs for the less fortunate. And that's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, that's absolutely awesome. We could learn something from that. These are folks who are loaded with compassion, and they're saturated with warm feelings about Jesus. And they get really excited about being part of this sort of social wave of, of helping people in so many ways. But here's the problem. Unfortunately, many of them are in churches that don't have a clue about sound doctrine. In fact, it just doesn't get taught from their pulpits. It's not discussed in their, in their gatherings at all. It's common to hear people in churches like this say, well, you know, doctrine's sort of irrelevant. It's just, you know, it's, it's really academic. It's, it's sort of divisive. And, and so the point of the Christian life isn't any more complicated than love God and love people. And that's all we have to do. Everything else is just a distraction. 
You hear this a lot these days. You'll, you'll actually see that phrase on so many church websites now. This is all we're about, love God and love people. Now, that makes for a great Christian bumper sticker, doesn't it? Right? And, and by the way, it is, a, it is a summary of what Jesus called the greatest commandment. So it's not inaccurate. But if you break down that bumper sticker, you're going to see that more is required than just trite phrases like love God and love people. Loving God is not just a good feeling that you get because you've served somebody else. That's not the full definition of loving God. Well, I went out there and I fed homeless and I, sheltered, I, I fed the hungry and I sheltered homeless. So I get this really great feeling. I really feel like I've done something good. Therefore, I've loved God. It's not just that. How can you truly love God if you don't understand what Scripture says about him? What his attributes are? Not just his love, but all of the attributes of God, including his justice and his wrath. It isn't just about having a warm feeling about God. How can you truly love God if you haven't been taught the doctrinal truth about who Jesus really is and what actually happened on the cross and what it means to grab hold of his sacrificial atonement by faith alone? How can you truly love God if you have an incomplete understanding of concepts like sin and grace and faith and justification? How can you truly love God if you can't discern his sovereign rule, how he's operating in our world today? How can you truly love God if you don't know how he tells us how he desires to be worshipped? How can you truly love God if you won't look closely at what pleases him? If you don't know what his moral precepts are in contrast to the values that our culture is pushing today, how can you truly love him? You get the idea, right? Those things are important. That's the foundation of the house. The sad thing is there's many people in these churches and denominations who've come to believe that they know God and they love God and that they're going to be saved in the end because of the good deeds they're busy doing. Because of those things. And so they fall under the same condemnation that Paul discussed in Romans chapter 10 when he said his fellow Jews have zeal, but it's a zeal without knowledge. Zeal enough will not save you. You can be zealously wrong and be condemned in the end. These folks are seeking to establish their own brand of righteousness rooted in good deeds. And so they'll be condemned if they don't repent and trust in Christ alone. The bottom line is this. These folks folks have a beautiful house, but it's a house without a foundation. And in the end, it will collapse. Now, lest we become self-righteous, let's look at the flip side of this. I've known people who have spent their lives in really good Bible-teaching churches. Folks who have been taught loads of sound theology. They are, they are fluent in the doctrines of grace. They have a copy of Calvin's Institutes at home, <laughs> that, which is good, by the way. They're fans of MacArthur and Sproul and Moeller. They, they can wax eloquent about everything from superlapsarianism to dispensational eschatology. And they're absolute jerks. Absolute jerks. Their goal is to impress you, not love you. They're harsh and they're judgmental. They're know-it-alls. They're arrogant and self-centered. There's there's no urgency in their heart to get out and serve people. And even when they do, they do it so that their works will be seen by men. They want to impress, not love. Most of them don't love their spouses well. They don't parent their children well. They grumble in the church. They love to critique their leaders, always believing that they know more and could do better. These folks are all foundation and no house. What a waste, right? 
So as we come to Romans chapter 12, it's important to see that what Paul wants to do is to reject both of those extremes and to say, we've got to find a balance here. He challenges the experience-based man to realize that all of that practical ministry has to grow out of a mind and a heart that's been trained by the doctrine of Scripture. And he challenges the doctrine-saturated man to show evidence of his vast knowledge. How? By living a life of practical service and selflessness in loving others. And here's the truth. Can I just say, every single person in this room is out of balance in that area because none of us do this perfectly. Every one of us is on one side of that spectrum or the other. And so it's incumbent upon each one of us as Christ followers to examine ourselves and to say, which side of that do I lean towards and how can I make the necessary adjustments for the glory of God? So friend, are you longer on service and shorter on doctrine? Study more. Study more. Know the doctrines of grace. Understand the biblical theology that undergirds your practical ministry. Study more. Are you longer on doctrine and shorter on service? Then work on loving better. Maybe set the book aside for a while and focus on loving people more. But make the adjustment. The Christian life has a foundation. That's what Paul wants to say here. He spent 11 chapters in Romans laying that foundation. We, by the way, have spent about two years laying that foundation here together. And now we get to enjoy the fruit of all that labor, beginning here in chapter 12. These are truths that Paul intends for us to put into action. This is a call to action beginning in chapter 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, because of everything I've said already, this is how we have to live. Make sense? Okay, let's dive into into verse 1. Look at verse 1. What exactly does that therefore link to? Remember, it follows verse 36 in chapter 11, which is this beautiful statement. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Is that true, by the way? Do we affirm that? That's an amen? Everything in this universe you're telling me is designed for his glory? Everything? Good. If so, then it follows that our lives are from him that we're to live through him, and we should be giving ourselves to him for one purpose. That's to bring him glory. That's what that therefore is linked to. And Paul says here in verse 1, I'm going to click it up on the screen, that this is a call to action, and here's what he wants you to do. You ready? Present your bodies to God as a living and holy sacrifice. I urge you to do this, Paul says. I urge you. Now, that word in the Greek means to call alongside. This is, this is not a demand. It's not a command. It's actually even a little bit gentler than an exhortation. This is Paul coming alongside us like our big brother and saying, look, I appeal to you out of love. Do this. I appeal to you. Do this alongside me. Present your bodies to God as a living and holy sacrifice. Now, that word present is important. Paul's already used it four times in his argument in the book of Romans. In the original Greek, it has a wide range of meaning, but in context, it basically says, offer yourselves. Offer yourselves to God. Back in chapter 6, Paul referred to presenting parts of your body to sin. Do you remember? He said, don't offer your members as, 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 as to sin, as instruments of unrighteousness. And then he contrasted it. He said, present those same parts of your body as slaves to righteousness, because that's going to result in sanctification, he said. And he leaves the choice up to the believer. 
He says, who are you going to offer yourself to? That's a question we ought to be asking. Who, who am I offering myself to? Even this morning, even this week, who am I offering myself to? And Paul made it very clear, whoever you offer yourself to, you become a slave to that person or to that thing, whether it's God or it's sin, righteousness or unrighteousness. But make no mistake, this is important. None of us lives without a master. We all have a master. We're all a slave to something. Is it God or is it sin? Is it righteousness or is it unrighteousness? Now, the way that Paul uses this verb in verse 1 is really important. It's written what we call the aorist tense with an active voice. And here's what that means. To present or offer your body to God as a sacrifice is similar to a commitment that you make in marriage. In this regard, it's a one-time, decisive, and unshakable commitment that then moving forward has a long-term effect. Okay, so I made a one-time, decisive, unshakable commitment on September 8, 1990, to Tanya. And that's had a long-term effect, 28 years and counting. Thank you. Okay, good. Just making sure you're awake. That's what Paul's urging you to do here in verse 1, to commit your entire person to God, to offer your body to him as a sacrificial offering. Have you done that yet? Now, that's a serious question. Have you done that yet? You say, oh, but Jeff, look, I've been saved for many, many years. Okay, I pray that's true, but I'm going to ask you again. Have you made that commitment? Have you sacrificially offered your body to God alone as his slave for all time? That's not a question to answer casually or quickly. Have you made that commitment, that one-time commitment, that is now extending into the future a commitment to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice to him alone for all time. It's possible that somebody in this building this morning is holding back on that. They've said in their heart, and I'm not going to say it out loud, but they've said in their heart, look, I want all the benefits of being saved. I like being identified as part of the church, but I'm going to do whatever I please with my body. Now, nobody says that out loud, but in their heart, that's their thought process. I'm going to do, it's my body. I mean, is, not, is, is the culture not telling us that? To, is that culture not hammering that down on us right now? It's your body. Do as you please. And that seeped into the church. So I'll say it again. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. You cannot serve two masters. Be warned. Now, when I say that, I'm not referring to somebody who's committed to Christ but yields to temptation and falls into sin on occasion. I'm talking about somebody who believes two opposing truths. Listen carefully to this. Number one, that I belong to Christ, and number two, that I can do with my body as I please. Nope. Those two things cannot coexist. I belong to Christ, but I can do with my body as I please. Choose this day whom you will serve. You'll either serve God or you'll serve idols. Again, not talking about somebody who stumbles into sin on occasion, but somebody in their heart who has said that. I can belong to Christ and do as I please. Be careful. Now we're going to see next week that when we look at verse 2, that that initial offering of our bodies to God brings with it a continuing obligation. In fact, moment by moment. To renew our thinking so that we continue to sacrificially offer ourselves to him. And here's the cool thing about this and the cool thing about the Christian life, that process never stops. 
as you grow in faith, you will inevitably come to be aware of areas in your life that you haven't yet yielded to God. So this isn't, you're not perfect yet. Based on the knowledge that you have of your own heart condition and who God is, you've made that one-time commitment, but as you mature, God's going to show you more things that needed to be yielded to him, right? That's part of growing in the faith. It's a lifelong process. That's why he calls it a living sacrifice. It's not a dead sacrifice. Well, I I said that one time way back in the day. I, I prayed a prayer and that's it. No, it's a living sacrifice. It's a continuing thing. I made a one-time commitment to yield my body to God as an offering. But now, man, he showed me more sin in my life. Okay, I'm going to yield that to him as well. We're living sacrifices. We yield again and again as we mature in our walk with him. But here's what I'm getting at as we look at this verse. Have you truly made that first decision to offer every part of your body to God as a sacrificial offering? Or are you holding something back from him? Your mind. Have you yielded your mind to God? How you think, how you learn, how you process ideas, how you look for truth. Your hands, how you use them to labor for the gospel and to serve others. Your feet, the places that you go. The places that you go to share the gospel with lost people. Your lips, how you use them to praise God in song. Your your tongue, how you speak to others, either to build up or to tear down. Your eyes, what you, choose, what you choose to look at and focus on. Your ears, what you choose to listen to and allow to influence you. Your private parts, how you express yourself sex- sexually, faithfully or not. Your emotions, how you process through feelings and, and guard yourself. Your will, how you go about making choices. Will you offer every part of you to him? That's what Paul's urging you to do today. Nothing less than everything is going to do for a God who's given, given everything for you. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and that you are not your own? Paul says, you're not your own. Brother, sister, you've been bought with a price, a costly price. By the blood of God's own son, your substitute on that cross, you've been redeemed out of a slave market, Paul says. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Offer every part of it to him. By the way, maybe you caught something really good news in that. When you offer your body to God, it's not a physical sacrifice. It's a spiritual sacrifice. You know why? Because Christ made the physical sacrifice for you. How many of you guys are really, you stop and go, that's nice. We belong on that cross. We belong there. We deserve the pain and suffering that went with it. But we don't have to make the physical sacrifice of our bodies anymore. Jesus has done that in our place. So in Peter's words, we now offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Your body now serves as your spiritual sacrifice of praise. It's your life. It's your spiritual praise to God. And every part of you. I I went through mind, hands, feet, lips, tongue, eyes, ears, private parts, emotions, will, all of it offered to God as a spiritual sacrifice of praise. Amen? Let's go back to verse 1. I want you to see the motivation behind this. Motivation means everything, doesn't it? It's not just about uh, go do this. Why do you do this? Motivation really matters. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Look at that. Underline, by the mercies of God. A better translation is really this. In view of the mercies of God. 
Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Motive. Why do we do what we do? What drives your behavior and your choices? What motivates you to do this but not that? Why did you come to church this morning? There's a reason. Something motivated you, right? There's a motive behind everything that we do. And here in verse 1, Paul tells us what ought to motivate the offering of our bodies and our lives to God. It's his mercies. In view of God's mercies, present your bodies to him. Here's the big idea that you should write down today. Some of you guys are taking notes. Write this down. The motive for all Christian living ought to be your experience of God's mercy in Christ. I'll say it again. The motive for all of your Christian living ought to be your experience of God's mercy in Christ. That's our motivation. Not one of us here this morning can claim that God owes us salvation, right? What's the one thing that we've earned from God? Judgment. We've all sinned a million times over, so all we've earned is judgment. So that leaves us with one option if we want to be saved, to cry out for God's mercy. That's it. That's it. Only he can cleanse us from unrighteousness. And that's what he's done for those of us who've trusted in Christ alone, the only perfect and acceptable offering for sin. And now, out of gratitude for his mercy and a heartfelt desire to please our master who purchased us out of that slave market, we present to him our bodies and our lives. And we say, Lord, be glorified in me. It's out of gratitude. It's because of his mercies. When it all boils down, this is really the purpose that you're alive today. The reason you have breath in your lungs is to show the world the great mercy of God. So let the world see it. Don't hide it. Let the world see the mercy of God in Christ in you. Because of God's mercy, I do this and not that. Because of God's mercy, I speak this way and I don't speak that way. Because of God's mercy, I prioritize these things and not those things. Because of God's mercy, I respond to people like this and not like that. Because of God's mercy in Christ, it's been poured out on me. See, Christian living isn't freestanding. It's built on something. Understand that. It's not just some freestanding thing. Oh, let's go out and act like Christians. It's built on something, on the beautiful doctrinal truths of the gospel and the mercies of God in Christ. And that's what motivates us to live different types of lives, nonconformist lives, countercultural lives. That's what we're going to talk about next week. We're actually the edgy ones now. We're nonconformists. We're countercultural. That's how we're to live. But there's a motivation for it. It's not just to be edgy. It's not just to be different. It's the mercies of God that call us to live that way. Here's what we don't say as Christians. Just go out and do it. We don't say that. Don't just grit your teeth and go do these things. Just you know, buckle up and discipline yourselves to go out and act like Jesus. That is not the right motivation. In fact, that's not even the Christian life. That's moralism, isn't it? That's stapling live fruit to a dead tree. It's a failed strategy that's not going to impress God. It's not going to get you any closer to him. In fact, that form of dead works where we're just mustering up on our own strength, this, this you know, I'm going to discipline myself and do something that looks really good, that actually takes you farther from the gospel. That takes you farther away from new life in Christ. So Oak Hill, let's build our practical lives together. 
And, and listen, we live by a covenant, right? Ten things that we're committed to. Let's build those things on the right foundation, on the mercies of God, the mercy that we've received from him. Because of the gospel truth contained in Romans 1 through 11, let's live a life of Romans 12 through 16. Amen? And by the way, making that choice to be a sacrifice unto God, it's inherently rational, Paul says. So for you philosophy guys out there, it's inherently rational to offer yourselves as a spiritual sacrifice to God. That's what Paul intends to convey at the very end of verse 1 when he says, which is your spiritual service of worship. Weird phrase. I mean, if you've studied the Greek, you know this is strange. The word spiritual there, logikos, in the Greek, it's the only time that Paul uses this word in all of his letters. In fact, to really understand what he's trying to say, we have to go outside the New Testament and look at Hellenistic writers of the day and see how it was used. And in fact, we find out that the Stoic philosophers used it quite often. And what they did was they used it to talk about how the only worship that was rational or reasonable or true or proper was this type of worship in contrast to the way ancient Greeks worshiped the gods of Olympus. Okay, And so what then happened was Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, picked that up and used that phrase as a way to describe what it meant to, to worship Yahweh with the right spiritual heart. So the idea here is this. Paul is is appropriating the language of his day to say this to the Christians in Rome and to say to us today, this offering of your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God is the only appropriate or only rational worship response to what God has done for you. You got that, philosophers? It's rational. Now, that may seem like a very strange way to say it, but I got to say this. This is a simple but profound truth. The opposite of worshiping God, sinning against him, is deeply illogical. Did you know that? It's illogical. Sinning might bring a person fleeting pleasure for the moment, but it puts us in bondage to our own desires. We become prisoners to it, and it eats us away from within. That is irrational. Who does that? Who continues to sin in that way when they're being eaten away from the inside? Right? That's irrational. That's totally illogical. By contrast, Paul's confirming what we know as believers, that worshiping the God of the universe is inherently rational and logical. Why? Because when we fit within his will, we function according to our original design. And that's where we find peace and joy and contentment. And that's where we, we, we say we're a slave to righteousness, but we're really free. Because we're becoming like our creator. We're becoming like Christ. And now we're free from the penalty of sin and death. That's inherently logical, folks. So all those people, you know, you're talking to people in the workplace or whatever, lost people are like, oh, what you believe is crazy. No, it's inherently logical and rational. What they're doing, the way they're living and dying inside, that's illogical. The other interesting Greek word here, latria, a single word that the NAS says service of worship or just worship in other translations. There is a sense of service built into this word. Again, it's a very unusual word that Paul uses. The only other time he uses it is when he's describing the temple services in Romans chapter 9. John uses it once. The author of Hebrews uses it a couple times. And every time it's in connection with how the priesthood offers sacrifices within the temple service. So the idea here, Paul is describing how we as Christians function as this royal priesthood. We're priests. Did you know that? 
And we're to bring spiritual sacrifices, appropriate, rational, proper sacrifices to the altar. What is it? Our body and our lives. That's what we're to do. It's a spiritual sacrifice of praise and it's done in light of what God has done for us. Guys, this is logical. It's appropriate. It's proper and it's true. This is the beautiful picture that Paul is drawing for us with these very unusual Greek words. Now, I need to wrap up, but I want to share one last thing with you. Um, And this is something, I mentioned this to Grant yesterday when I saw him. Something that I saw in the text, I've been a Christian a long time, and I've never seen this before in these verses. And it it just dawned on me. The more you look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, the more you see that it's actually describing the reversal of the process that's described in Romans chapter 1. I want you to think about this for a second. I'll put it up on the screen. It's a reversal of the process that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. Do you remember how Paul showed us that God made himself evident to all of mankind? Right? You've got this picture of moral depravity and this downward spiral into sin and death. But Paul says, look, God has made himself evident to all men. Here's how he put it. He said, since the creation of the world... God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that man is without excuse. And so man can't deny the existence of God. He's he's seen God throughout creation, and the only logical, rational, and proper response to that revelation would be for man to bow down and worship the creator, right? I say, look at this. This couldn't have possibly just happened. This is Definitely God. And so my response should be what? I bow down and I worship. Amen? But that's not what happened, right? Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. So mankind, instead of worshiping, which would have been the proper response, chooses to bow down to idols instead, to created things. Why? in order to satisfy his own desires. That's still happening today. We see it every, everywhere around us, right? And so he's deceived into thinking that he's becoming wise when the opposite is true. He's actually becoming more the fool. And so God responds to man's arrogance by giving him over to his desires. Go ahead. That's what you want. I'll give you over to them. He, and he's given over to distorted thinking and sinful passions and his eyes and his mind are darkened in their ability to see and perceive truth. So we know that from Romans 1, right? Well, this is the sad tale of every natural descendant of Adam. Is this not happening all around us today? Do you not sense this spiral downward quickening in our day? The ability to think rationally seems to be disappearing from our culture. The inability to see the the obvious things about our world and about the human condition seems to be dying very, very quickly. What's the remedy? The mercy of God in Christ. And not only the forgiveness that we have, but catch this, the restoration and renewal that we experience in him. Restoration and renewal. Our false worship that we participated in as a natural descendant of Adam has now been turned to proper worship. The presenting of our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And the ongoing transformation of our minds, our thoughts, our thinking being renewed as we're being conformed to the image of our creator. Guys, that's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is about. This horrific scene in Romans 1 about how everything's in a downward spiral, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's being restored and renewed in proper worship and transformation of our minds. It's 
beautiful. It's beautiful. More on that next Sunday. Let me just close with this. The one verse that just kept coming to my head as I was working on this yesterday, Galatians 2.20. You think about worship. Galatians, write it down. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That's what it means to live a life pleasing to God, to let Christ live in and through you. Does that describe how you view your, your life every day when you wake up? Is that how you view this life? Not I who lives, but Christ in me. Or I'll ask you again, are you holding something back from him? Are you holding something back? In view of God's mercy, are you practically responding in rational and proper worship of the one who bought you? If not, today's a really good day to repent. Every day's a good day to repent, isn't it? Why? Because the mercies of God are new every morning. Isn't that a great truth? You're like, you're killing me here, Jeff. You're killing me with conviction here. Today's a great day to repent. And what's the promise of 1 John 1, 9? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Today's a really good day to repent. May we be like that woman from the story in Luke chapter 7. Listen, notorious sinners, notorious sinners transformed into passionate worshipers. Notorious sinners turned into passionate worshipers, willing to humbly bow before him and to take our greatest joy in simply being in his presence, no matter what it costs us. Let's pray.